I think every one of us needs to be in an area where we wake up every morning passionate about what we want to do. And for me, I realized that um, I like breadth, I like diversity, I like working on many different things versus the opposite would be to know something so deeply and so intimately that you focus on that narrowly, which each one of us has to figure out what drives us. That was Raj Shashadri. She's the data guru at one of the biggest data companies in the world, MasterCard. And I'm Michael Revo, and this is Blazing Trails, a podcast from Salesforce Studios. I'm here with my podcast partner, Rachel Levin. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Michael. How's it going? It is going very well. We're seeing each other through the screen still. <laughs> Happy 2022. Hey, we've got a series of conversations this month that have been really interesting. What is the theme? Tell us about it. Well, you know, these are conversations that we've had with some very powerful women. They're amazing, actually, and they are really at the height of their game, whether it's business, tech, journalism, nonprofits. You got to speak to Kara Swisher, one of your, you know, favorites, She's right? She's my idol. She's my <laughs> idol. That's right. just... and you, you held your own, Michael, I have to say. Listen, no, you don't need to do that here <laughs> on air. Not it's necessary, true. But thank I you. was kind thank of, you. I was bracing myself, but you know, there were a couple times where she gave us a shout out and said, good question. I was like, oh my God. Oh, when I got a good question from Kara Swisher, yeah. I was just like. Uh, made your day. Made, I mean, maybe made, made my year. <laughs> made my life. That was it. It was done. Call it. That's right. That's right. You made it to the podcast, you know, Hall of Fame right there. The podcast <laughs> pinnacle. That's Absolutely. Right. We've got a little alliteration on that and everything. It's right, amazing. Right, well, right. last week we heard from Stacey Cunningham, who is the president of the New York Stock Exchange. If you didn't hear that episode, be sure to go check that out. And she shared how she rose all the way from the trading floor to the C-suite and how teamwork got her there. And this week we hear from Raj, who tells the story of how she was going to be a physicist. She got the PhD and everything. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until her late 20s that she realized science wasn't the right path for her. Though the tools she learned on the wrong path ended up giving her a sort of superpower in the business world. So a really compelling story. Yeah, I mean, how many of us have had that moment? We're like, oh my God, we're in the wrong career. But how many of us have then said, you know what? I'm going to just face this head on and have the courage to make an amazing pivot. I mean, this is not like being a physicist to a data scientist. This is this huge leap. Yeah, from academia to being a top executive in business. So let's get into it and jump right into my conversation with Raj Shashadri, who's the president of Data and Services at MasterCard. Raj, welcome to the show. Thank you, and it's great to be here with you. Okay, wonderful. Well, let me start with a kind of a big question, which is, what drew you to want to work in technology and data? How did you get to where you are right now? Well, it was a, um, it's a very checkered journey, you know, the checkered past. Um, I started life as a geek and I'm very proud of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in college, I was a physics and math major and then I got my PhD in physics and worked briefly in physics. But I wanted to get more into the business world. And so I explored sort of going from fundamental research all the way into marketing and decided I should go to business school. So I ended up going to business school. And I will tell you, you know, I grew up with Moore's law. In 1965, Moore, uh, Gordon Moore of Intel essentially said, you know, computing, uh, he meant chips on a transistor, but would grow exponentially. And that's been true in, you know, transmission, in storage, in processing, right? Every aspect of uh, computing leading up into this age of, uh, you know, everything is possible. It's very data-driven, digital analytics are possible. Things that I studied in math, we can now code, And the ability to code means that we can push the envelope on the math. 
So I started life as a geek and, uh, um, and like I said, very proud of it. And I, frankly, in my career, I've navigated into sort of thinking about these issues in the context of the business world around consumers, around technology, and around financial services, which is inherently a, a data-driven area. And then increasingly thinking about commerce and uh, thinking about you know, the consumer in the context of commerce. And so uh, that in this day and age, given the data we have and the analytics and AI that we have and the computing power that we have, have is uh, remarkable. Mm-hmm. And there's so many things we can do now and we can do them in real time. It's amazing. And tell me a little bit about that moment when you said, okay, I want to move into the business world. Was there some insight there? Was there something that changed that trajectory? What were you thinking at that time? I don't know what I was thinking. (laughs) (laughs) And it happened very, very slowly uh, Uh over a few years where, you know, I realized, I think it was more an insight about myself Mm -hmm. and really understanding what I got excited about, right? Because I think every one of us needs to be in an area where we wake up every morning passionate about what we want to do. Mm -hmm. And for me, I realized that um, I like breadth. I like diversity. I like working on many different things uh, versus the opposite would be to know something so deeply and so intimately that you focus on that narrowly, Mm -hmm. which each one of us has to figure out what drives us. And so to me, I loved physics, but learning more and more about less and less. And in my case, I'm very extroverted. So talking to fewer and fewer people meant that while I loved the people I worked with and I loved the area I was working in and still very fond of my advisor and my collaborators, I realized that for me over the next career of 40, 50 years, that uh, I wanted the breadth, I wanted the diversity, I wanted the, you know, working on a variety of different things. And that was the understanding of myself, I think, that it didn't happen overnight, it Mm -hmm. happened slowly, Mm -hmm. so painfully slowly that some people got fed up with me. (laughs) I spent so much time thinking about it and debating it with myself because it's a big decision. Right. It's a big choice to, um, you know, leave one career path, one trajectory and switch to another. I mean, that's something that that's such a big change. Now, what are you bringing from your physics education and sort of that rigorous thinking now into your current job? It's interesting. You know, when I'm asked that question, people immediately assume it's analytics or, you know, uh, a computation or, you know, elements. But it's actually, it's structured thinking. It's the ability to take a problem, dissect it carefully, structure the problem. And then also a notion that, Every problem has a solution. We may not have found it as yet, but if we keep trying, we might find it. Mm-hmm. And, and this notion of, I, you know, I did experimental physics, so this notion of experimentation, trying, testing, right, learning, and that's how you can push the envelope on a problem. So there's a lot that physics taught me and uh, all the people that I worked with in physics taught me that I keep with me to this day. So I'm curious about some of your influences on your leadership style. You've, you know, you've been in the academic world, you've business world. What are some of those influences that you've learned from either of those worlds on on your leadership style? My leadership style, I would say it is... um, Is that even a thing? Yeah, I think think style is very situational. So depending Mm -hmm. on what you're doing, there might be different dimensions that you draw upon, Mm -hmm. or at least different techniques, thought processes that I draw upon. But I will tell you the, what is core to my leadership style as I think about it is listening, really listening and absorbing listening to every point of view, absorbing it, thinking about it, and then using that input. Mm -hmm. There is a point of diminishing returns. You don't keep doing it forever. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's really important to understand what you're faced with from every angle and every perspective. So talking to various different people about a problem, 
trying to understand with you know what they're saying, why they're saying it, what might be motivating their perspective. Mm-hmm. So I think listening is what I would say. Yeah, and you know that can be such a challenge, particularly in a demanding role where you have so many different pressures and you're trying to stay in a position to be able to listen and to be able to hear clearly. How do you manage that? How do you keep that distance and objectivity to be able to make those good decisions? I think objectivity comes from integrating many perspectives, right? Uh, So that you can actually see whether it's a one-off or an odd comment or whether it's actually a theme. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, in the pandemic, the most difficult part is uh, when you're not traveling and you're on screen with everyone, you can't have as many of these informal, hey, what do you think? Or, you know, touching base with people, seeing them in person, you know, traveling to where they are, whether it's customers, whether it's, you know, people, you know, within the company, it is those interactions are what I missed in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And you have to, you know, I realized very quickly that one has to compensate for it, which means you have to reach out more, do more one-on-ones, do more small group meetings, mm-hmm. try and simulate as much of that as is physically possible in a virtual world, mm-hmm. you know, so that you can still keep your ear to the ground and mm-hmm. have, you know, small groups or individual conversations that give you those perspectives. Yeah, today has been kind of amazing where, (laughs) Rachel, we've been doing this podcast now for almost two years, but basically all during the pandemic and all remote. And we've done four of these today, sitting across the table and being here in a room. It's a totally different feeling. It is remarkable. I will tell you going forward, there are two things we've learned. One is when we were all virtual, we realized the value of physical, right? Being together you know, community, culture, connections all come from being together. Mm -hmm. But what we also learned in the pandemic world is remote is possible and there's more flexibility. It is possible to work from wherever we are. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, especially given uh, video communications techniques now, it's almost as good as being with the person. Not not as good, to be clear. And I think um, as we think of the future, all of us have to think about, you know, how are we going to take the best of both and bring them together? in a way that works. Mm -hmm. Because I think there were things in the pandemic that were amazing, things then the pandemic that were very difficult. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about work. The pandemic itself was terrible, but I'm talking about working in a virtual world. Yeah. So the things that we missed from being together as we all are experiencing today, Mm -hmm. and the things that we benefited, you know, we advanced in thinking our own thinking about what's possible. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things that makes me think about is, uh, and particularly now being having some more in-person experiences is the opportunities to meet different people, to have this serendipity of that happen, which can lead to relationships and mentor relationships. For example, can you talk a little bit about sort of mentors you've had or either as a mentor or a mentee over the years that have helped you grow in your career? So uh, mentors have played a big role uh, in my life. And um, But when I think about mentors, I think about them in different categories, right? Because people, the word mentor itself means many things to many people. Mm -hmm. So lots of people have given me very useful advice at various points in my career and in my life. And then a few people have been, you know, helped me hand on the back in a much more deliberate way and also have been sort of my board of directors, for the lack of a better term. People have gone to, to seek advice, to bounce ideas off, to be a sounding board to think things through. Mm-hmm. People have created opportunities for me. That second set is a very small group. So I think there's the bigger group of people who advise you and there's the smaller group of people who actually shape you mm-hmm. and shape your career and make things in make you realize there are things that you can do above and beyond what you had thought about. Open doors that you didn't even know existed. 
So I think, you know, that's the category. That's the differentiation. I, the whole spectrum is important, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But it's important to know, you know, who's in that smaller group. And, uh, you know, in terms of being mentored, I've benefited tremendously from being mentored. And so Ajay Banga is, you know, my biggest mentor. And I think I feel I have a responsibility to pay it forward. So I actively do the same thing for a lot of people at MasterCard and outside MasterCard. Mm-hmm. And like I said, for some people, I'm in that first category of somebody who just gives advice either at a point in time or when it's sought, right? And for other people, you know, I sort of have played the role somebody like Ajay has played for me. Mm-hmm. And I think each one of us needs that spectrum. And I think each one of us has a responsibility to pay it back and provide that for other people, you know, who the up and coming younger generation behind mm-hmm. us. I think sometimes it's hard to know I don't want to say how to find, because it's not necessarily fine, but maybe identify the opportunity to start that relationship or feeling comfortable that you deserve to have that relationship or that it's right. You know, how do you cross that threshold? I think that's something all of us have felt. Like, I'm not sure if I you know, want to do this. You know, you're about to send that email, but mm, I'm not going to send it. Have you had that feeling or how do you overcome that? Absolutely. I think everyone has it. And I think there's no single path, right? Sometimes... It comes out of having worked closely with someone Mm -hmm. or worked on a project with someone. Sometimes it comes from having met somebody. Sometimes it comes from reaching out and connecting with someone. And in all of these situations, sometimes it's a a thinner connection and sometimes it's a thicker connection. And that depends on the two individuals and the circumstances, et cetera. So I think uh, you should always try. Mm -hmm. If you don't have any at-bats, you won't have any home runs, right? (laughs) But you should always always, uh, seek it out. But don't assume that every time it's going to be a home run. Right. Right. If you don't try at all, it's definitely not going to happen. So I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about something that supported Salesforce, which is the values that drive our business and how we make decisions. I'm curious about what those values are at MasterCard. I know you guys are doing so much great stuff. Can you talk to me a little bit about what's the values that are driving the company? Sure. We are. We have a mission and a purpose, right? So we talk about a world beyond cash. We talk about financial inclusion. We do a lot uh, in many spheres of the communities and the society that we live in. MasterCard is about doing good and doing well, mm-hmm. right? It's both. It's not one or the other. And doing well is important. We are, you know, we're a company at the end of the day. We have results that matter. Mm-hmm. But as a result of doing well, you can also do good. And it's important. I think it's very, um, it's almost a responsibility for us to focus on doing good. Mm-hmm. So, um like I said, whether it's financial inclusion or working with community organizations or individuals donating their time to causes that they care deeply about, you know, team activities, from the smallest to the biggest, I think uh, really thinking about how you give back to society is important. Mm-hmm. I know there were some efforts that you guys were doing during this COVID time that have been really innovative and helpful to communities. Spending Pulse being mm-hmm. one of them, and shopopenings.com. There's some really interesting programs. Can, can you sure. tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and Digital Doors. There's so many of them. Yeah. Right? We realized in the pandemic that, you know, frankly, yesterday's data is not relevant anymore. Mm-hmm. Yesterday's consumer is gone. And you've got to really understand where the consumer is, where she is today, and meet her in that moment. And by the way, it's not as if, you know, it changed from yesterday to today. Today, it's going to change tomorrow. So things are if, uh, you know, evolving rapidly. There's an acceleration of digital trends, data trends, you know, the availability of uh, all kinds of... Um, there's an acceleration of a shift to digital, which is a trend that was there before, but it continues, you know, at a much faster pace now. 
And as you think about that, what we realized is that we put out recovery insights, which was this notion that you need today's data analyzed in the right way, the insights teased out in real time today, and to use to figure out, you know, what your new experiments are, what your new solutions are, what are you going to double down on and reprioritize around? And so that was the um, rationale behind Recovery Insights, to help our customers assess, react, and recover, to help ourselves assess, react, and recover, and then thrive. And we've done uh, thousands of engagements with uh, many different customers, you know, lots of good stories coming out of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and then I think you mentioned sharp openings. We realized early in the pandemic that um, you didn't know whether anything was, you know, a store near you was open or not, whether it's a grocery store, a restaurant, a pharmacy. And suddenly we realized, hey, we know, because if we see a MasterCard transaction, it's open. And our data is clean enough that we can put it out there. I mean, part of this is you need to have really clean, good quality data. And so shop openings was very simply us telling the world, hey, if you want to find out if something's open, we can provide you with that information. Mm -hmm. And so that's how that started. Spending Pulse was one where we found, you know, that takes card data, extrapolates it to all cards, all tender types, cash check, and then really looks at what a consumer spends, right? The reality is we see money movements globally across verticals, across geographies, and then we can extrapolate that to the economy. And so Spending Pulse was um, very useful in the pandemic to help, you know, not just customers, merchants and banks, but also governments, local, state, city governments, try and understand what was going on in the pandemic in their neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. So for example, you know, if a city didn't know what it's, uh, people moving out of the cities. So if they couldn't forecast their sales tax revenue, you know, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. And so helping them come up with insights for them to use real time. So Spending Pulse did very well in terms of its impact on the world around us. And then the other one I wanted to mention was Digital Doors, Mm -hmm. which uh, so we came up, you know, in this pandemic, we just put out a Recovery Insights report last week. Small businesses that went online early and the rate at which they went online every month grew rapidly in the early months. It peaked around July 2020. Those businesses had a 5% increase in spend and spend that they wouldn't have had if they hadn't gone online, gone digital. And so with that realization early on, as we saw that trend, we said we should put out a digital diagnostic for small businesses so that they can take the diagnostic, figure out what they need to do to go digital and then access the tools that they need to go digital. So from that, that diagnostic is a you know, part of digital doors, which opens the digital world for a small business, which has been critically important for a business to thrive. So lots of interesting things coming out of the pandemic. I, and I think what the thread that's so interesting with all of these programs is it's a combination of transparency because it's taking the data that you have and making it available for the public in that in that way. And then the data-driven decision-making that's being created from that. So, you know, you hear about data-driven decision-making, and I think we've all seen <laughs> levels of that that are, some are real data and some are not. How do you think about that in your organization? You know, the first thing I'll say, it's not the data, it's the insights that matter. Yeah. And to get to the insights, you need to have very clean, good quality data. You need to know what its drawbacks are. You need to know what the constraints are, what the permissions are. And then you need to have really good uh, analytics around it where, you know, uh, you can tease out the insights. It's the insights that matter. Mm-hmm. The services that we provide, our goal is to help businesses make smarter decisions for better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, the question is, are you making a data-driven decision with the right insights guiding you and the right level of experimentation and doubling down on what succeeds 
guiding you because that'll make your outcomes substantially better. Mm-hmm. And so that that's the approach that we take. So we go through, an, we have many different services and the, we start with the customer and the problem the customer is trying to solve and then go through a step. It's not complicated. We essentially look at our data, third-party data, customers' data to figure out what's relevant, what's useful, and what's permissioned to give insights to a particular problem. Mm-hmm. And then we tease out the insights. We come up with the recommendations. We uh, create the experiments. We uh, work with the customer to test the experiments mm-hmm. to see what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then you get to the act portion where a customer either uses it directly mm-hmm. or we can help them use it or we can do it for them. And then, you know, and then you improve upon that mm-hmm. and you come up with the next set of ideas or the ways of tweaking it to make it even better, right? So this, this approach uh, that we use is what guides us at the end of the day. It sounds a lot like the physics work that you used to do. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm really curious about the clean data question because I think we've all experienced this in trying to get clean data, understand that we're actually operating from truthful data. Just tell me a little bit more without getting too technical about how you do achieve this clean data. What do, what do you have to do? There is no shortcut is the first thing I'll say. And you have to be very careful, very methodical and really think it through. So we've been lucky in that our forefathers in MasterCard over the last two decades, you know, from um, when they first started thinking about it, they started cleansing it and warehousing it and uh, thinking about data quality and data coverage and uh, applying analytics and AI techniques in order to aggregate, anonymize, you know, do things the right way. Mm -hmm. We have a set of data principles that we apply where, you know, consumers should own their own data. Mm -hmm. They should be the ones who decide who to give it to. Mm -hmm. They should benefit from its use. Our principles are also our job is to keep things secure, right? Um, And transparency, you mentioned that earlier. All of these feed into how you tease out the insights from the data. Mm-hmm. And so that, that's the approach that we, we've we taken. And we now can, uh, given what we've done over the last two decades and we continue to innovate, we can zoom out to look at a macroeconomic environment. We can zoom in to look at a location. We can think about the consumer holistically across all different types of, all their tender types. These insights that drive our services, because all of our services are built on these data-driven insights. It really comes from all the work that, you know, my predecessors did and, you know, uh, my successors will do and our teams do every day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you got you to gotta put in the effort to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, to there are no shortcuts. <laughs> no shortcuts yeah. to that. I'm curious in your marketing role where that, that relationship with data happened. I think there's a, you know, there's tons of data obviously that's driving marketing, but there's also some gut decisions you have to make and emotional side to marketing. How did you think about that when you were in that world? So, you know, I'm still in that world in a way because we have consumer engagement services. We have a lot of marketing services that we provide to our customers, Mm -hmm. you know, to help them engage with their consumers. We are B2B2C business, Mm -hmm. but we help our customers, the middle B, engage with their consumers. We have um, a very large loyalty business on both the issuer side and the merchant side. So we, I'm still in the marketing business, just yeah. from a services point of view, as opposed to as a CMO. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if we're talking about data and insights and technology. I will tell you the thing that's really exciting about the future is thinking about consumer engagement, right? Each one of us is a consumer. How can we access what we need? It used to be there was mass marketing and then there was mass customization. But now, you know, increasingly you can go down to a customization uh, you know, that vision of customizing to the individual is actually 
possible now. Mm -hmm. But it has to be done right. It has to be done in a way that I've permissioned it as a consumer. It has to be done in a way that it doesn't feel weird to me. There should be no friction in it. It should be appropriate. You know, it should be secure. So there are lots of dimensions to that engagement. But I, I do think getting to that consumer engagement where you're giving me what I want when I want it in a way where it's easy for me to access it. I don't have to do a lot to access it. I think that is the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a really interesting uh, future. Great. So that's an interesting innovation for sure. What are some of, there's so much innovation happening in the world of finance, everything from cryptocurrency to how people are buying to digitization, et cetera. What are some of the big trends? What's getting you excited that you're thinking about for the future? What can you talk about there? I, I underscore smarter decisions for better outcomes. So data-driven, insight-driven, experimentation-driven, fact-based decisions. So that, uh, because there's intuition, which is great, but you, you really, you know, need to have a fact-based approach. And so I think that is the future. Um, and to make that insights flow in real time mm -hmm. to actually shape solutions is the future. And we have it, like I was talking about our marketing services businesses. We also have, you know, other services, insights, analytics, you know, uh, payments consulting services, et cetera, where we use a lot of this. But I think the impact goes far beyond into, you know, I think about the world of commerce. The world of commerce is exciting because as a consumer, it covers your life. You know, what you do, uh, where you buy your dinner, where you might buy your child's textbooks or uniforms or, you know, whatever it is, right? Uh, where you might travel, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where you might um, consume, uh, buy an electronic good. So the world of commerce is what I find exciting, where there's a lot of uh, really interesting trends and change as we go digital, as we go, you know, data-driven, et cetera. But I, I think this goes beyond that to all aspects of our life, whether it's healthcare, it's education, you know, every aspect of our life, I think, is driven by this data-driven, insight-smarter decisions trend. You know, and it's something, it's also around access. You know, right now we have an access problem where we've got so much wealth inequality and, and what is that experience for, you know, groups who can't access some of the opportunities that we're talking about, who face barriers, you know, how is MasterCard addressing that? How is this data and these insights, how can it help rise yeah. all boats? No, I, and I think the world that we're in, um, we can do more in terms of access. Mm -hmm. So like I said, we really focus on doing well and doing good. So for us, that access comes in many different forms. It comes in the form of data for good. Right? Where can we provide insights to um, organizations that can use it to better the world? You know, where, where can we help smart cities you know, get smarter? Where can we help uh, financial inclusion, which you, you know, everyone immediately thinks about the developing world. It's also in the developed world. It's in this country that we live in. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about financial inclusion to make sure everyone can become part of the digital economy, mm -hmm. can have an identity in the digital world, mm -hmm. can be able to you know, leverage digital payments tools and to be able to buy online the mm -hmm. way you and I do. Mm -hmm. So thinking about you know, financial inclusion is really important. Well, what, tell me more about financial inclusion. I, you know, I'm not sure I know really what that idea. There's the digital aspect. What, what else does that mean? A lot of it is the digital aspect. So you know, having a digital identity mm -hmm. or having an identity is really important. In some countries, uh, you know, it's about actually creating basic identity. Mm -hmm. In other places that have that identity, it's about making sure that uh, those consumers have access to financial services, have access to markets. So, for example, there are parts of the world where 
we help farmers access the wholesale markets much more directly, cutting out a lot of the middlemen so that they keep more of the profits. Mm-hmm. It's about small business owners being able to access you know, credit, for example. Mm-hmm. We're spending a lot of time thinking about small business performance in- indices. Mm-hmm. So that are based not just on sales or, you know, I'm in a city and my sales are X, Y, or Z, and, or I have uh, ABC employees, but more based on um, other aspects of performance. What sector they're in, what's their trajectory, mm-hmm. you know, what kind of uh, other patterns are around them. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, to the extent uh, in, um, what their payments data looks like, because to the extent you can do that, you can get them access to credit, more credit, appropriately in the right way. So I think this notion of doing good and financial inclusion goes across many different areas. Mm -hmm. And it's a question of how do you, you know, I I will say um, inclusive growth is something we're spending a lot of time about, Mm -hmm. thinking about. I mean, do you see see changes coming in how risk is is looked at from different groups? Because that's an opportunity for people to get locked out that maybe would be good investments and available for credit, et cetera. How is that changing in the industry? How are people talking about that right now? So it is something we're thinking about, which is, you know, for people who can't access credit, how do you, in the right way, in the responsible way, because you want to do it in a way where it's not unnecessary risk, it's more better information to take better risks, Mm -hmm. right? I don't think anyone wants to take risks that they shouldn't be taking. Right. But for example, I came here as an immigrant. It was very hard to get my first credit card because, frankly, there was no history on me. So, but I think I'm a pretty good credit. I hope I am. (laughs) And so how do we help? That's an interesting segment, right? Right. How do we help somebody like me coming into this country more easily get their first, whatever the credit vehicle is, Mm -hmm. get access to credit earlier, sooner, in the right way? So how do you bring information to bear that might tell a bank or a lender that this person, give them more information so that they can make a more informed decision? Mm -hmm. So that's what we're thinking through. And And particularly important in the small business space because we do want our small businesses to thrive. It is the core of every economy. Mm -hmm. And what about education in those communities where people may not understand, you know, how credit works, banking system, et cetera? What kind of efforts are happening to sort of bring that education? We we had a great conversation with Frank Cooper III from BlackRock talking about a new definition of wealth and really that's driving him in, in his role there which is all about education and sort of changing how people are thinking about money. What's happening in the marketplace or at MasterCard that you're seeing around that? So we work with our banks and we, um, there are things that they do, there are things that we do and, and provide to them at scale mm-hmm. uh, so that they can reach their consumers. We work with our merchants. Again, you know, we create things at scale, they create things that are customized to their footprint and then they couple the two and they take it to their consumers. So we really work through our partners to get a lot of this out there. We work with cities. We work with governments. Our goal is to create it at scale, but provide it to the network of partners and customers we have so that they can take it. Mm -hmm. That's the forced multiplier. They can take it and use it to educate each of their constituents. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. I just have one last question. This has been very educational. (laughs) I appreciate it. Okay. So this one is, if you had to choose a different profession, something totally different, what would it be? I think I've already chosen two professions. So you're asking me what my third profession would be. Yes. Oh, gosh. I'd have to answer the one that I didn't do in the first place, which is medicine. But I don't know if I'm going to go back to medical school at this point. But, you know, that's the one that I chose not to do when I came to do a liberal arts degree. But I've already had two professions. 
But you know, the way life works these days with our life expectancy and uh, all the interests that we have, I think there'll be more in my future and in yours. Yes, it's never too late. It's never too late. And there's lots to do in this world. Yes. Lots of really interesting things to do in this world. Wonderful. Well, Ross, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was Raj Shashadri, president of Data and Services at MasterCard. Next week, meet the woman who leads Sesame Street Workshop and learn how the simple lessons from the Muppets can help you be far more successful in your business life. Thanks for listening today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios.